Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I am Christian Napier, and today our guest is Jill Lamping, who I'm very excited to have on the podcast, as she currently works for my alma mater, the beloved University of Utah, where I met my wife and where our daughter currently attends. So, Jill, thank you so much for joining. How are you? I'm doing very well. I am so happy to be here and sharing my perspective on my time with SLOC and the PID committee. I really appreciate you doing this. It's been amazing to listen to all the stories and the perspectives and the different aspects of the games that I had no clue on. It's been the same for me. You know, every episode's a bit of a revelation. I learned something new that happened that I had no idea occurred during the preparation or the delivery of the games. And so I appreciate you coming on and, and educating me once more. Now, I mentioned that you worked at the University of Utah. Why don't you tell everybody what it is that you do there? I am lucky enough to work um, for the College of Humanities, specifically in the Department of Communication, and I am a fundraiser. I find support for faculty members and incredible projects and student scholarship, and I get to work with amazing donors like our friend Bob Garth, who um, was so incredible during the games and traveled with me um, for a couple of days on the torch relay and then um, succumbed to COVID earlier this year. It's been a great way to stay and reconnect with friends of the university who are also friends of the bid and the games. That's been such a gift. Um, But it's also been a little bittersweet to hear some of the things and some of the passings that have happened. Well, a couple of things to unpack there. Number one, you mentioned (laughs) uh, the College of Humanities and uh, and communication. My wife's undergrad was, uh, she had a degree in communications, public relations at the University of Utah. So very happy about that. Number two, you mentioned Bob Garth, and yes, we all regret his passing and just recorded an episode with Ed Einan, and he had a very nice Bob Garth story. So when uh-huh. that episode airs, we'll encourage everybody to, to listen to that story, and we'll add your memory to those who've also shared Mary's, uh, memories Excuse me, of, uh, of Bob. Yeah. All right. Now, it does not appear that you are joining me from an office at the University of Utah. You're not there on campus. Are you working from home? I am. Like almost everybody else, um, we got sent home in mid-March and we've been here or um, in the mountains outside of Oakley since that time. So I feel very lucky to get to be able to work in a space where I can entertain my little person and... (laughs) Still try to get some good work done for the U. I want to come to a little person in a moment, but before I do, <laughs> what about fall semester? I mean, do you envision that you're going to be getting back on campus eventually? Since my position is not really student facing, I don't interact with students all the time. Um, I think we will be some of the last folks that will be invited back to campus just to keep it as safe as possible for the students. That's the highest priority of the university to make sure they have a great experience and can still gain that education while they're there. So I think um, since I can do my job remotely and connect with people in all sorts of new ways, sometimes it's fun to try and um, communicate and talk with donors who are from a different generation um, that aren't as technologically savvy, but it's also fun to actually use the phone and, and talk with them. 
I do miss that face-to-face -face interaction with people and like physically being in the same space. Um, but I think we'll be one of the last groups that are brought back on campus just because um, the folks who clean the buildings on main campus are also the same facilities folks who um, clean at the hospital. So their focus has really been and really should be um, the upper part of campus. So the fewer people we have on lower campus, the easier it is for everyone. So I hope to be back in person at some point. And I know that they're doing everything possible to get students in spaces where they feel safe and where they can still get that great University of Utah education. Yeah, well, my daughter is really looking forward to returning to campus. Online is fine and she's still learning, but it's hard to have the same kind of interaction with professors and also with fellow students. Now, you mentioned the little guy. How old is mm -hmm. the little guy and how has COVID impacted the whole family dynamic now that you're home working all the time? Oh, it is. Actually, it takes me right back to my days during the bid committee because, right, you don't have just one job. You have, I, <laughs> I'm now an IT specialist. I'm human resources, so I get to manage um, the scuffles that happen. I am um, event services. I run the kitchen as well as um, try and educate and entertain um, the people that, you know, I share this house with. So um, my guy is eight and a bit and um it's definitely been a challenge to try and keep all those balls in the air. And I'm so glad many of them drop and bounce back because it's, I think it's been just a trying learning experience for everybody. But I know that working with Slack really helped so many of us just figure out how to get things done and how to do maybe 75 things at once. I really love this analogy of comparing <laughs> raising a kid during COVID with organizing a games and basically filling all these roles of the various functional areas. I never really thought about that, but you're right. We're accommodation, we're food and beverage, we're security, we are medical services, we're all of these things uh, to our families. And that just amps up even more when we're home all the time with them and they're home all the time with us. We'll leave that all aside and we'll reflect back on the wonderful Salt Lake 2002 games. And I typically ask people how they joined the committee and what they were doing before then. So were you a native Utah? Did you live here before or did you have to relocate from somewhere to join the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? What were you doing before and what was your pathway to Salt Lake? Um, I am a Utah. My family still lives in Sandy, where I grew up. Um, I actually joined the Salt Lake Olympic Bid Committee in either late 1993 or early 1994. And I was the receptionist front desk person. So I'd been working in Salt Lake um, at another law firm and was lucky enough to be employed as um, that front first person that you see when you walk in the doors. We, our offices were um, at 215 South State Street. We had Suite 2002, as you would expect. Our telephone number was 801-322-2002. And I say this because very often at the time, there was a, a company that had um, a telephone number that was similar to ours, 532-2002. And 
I can't tell you how many times I picked up the phone to say, Salt Lake Olympic Bid Committee, how can I help you? And someone on the other end would say, are you easy rent to own? <laughs> I would. I, the first time it took me really off guard, but um, eventually I learned to say, oh, that's not what my family and friends tell me. And I would correct them with the telephone number and send them on their way. But like little things like the 2002 number on everything um, just kind of got ingrained in everything that we did, right? That's so funny. Easy rent to own. Of all the companies to have a common phone number with, it would have to be easy rent to own. Right. It's just classic. It's yeah. just classic. Yeah. So give us a few stories of the bid when you were working there uh, for the bid committee. What was that like? Oh my goodness. It was, I think Bob Bills did a really great job of describing how everyone who worked there or volunteered, like we all just pitched in and made it happen. Whether you had to be at the office preparing itineraries or um, if you were at a hotel at six in the morning preparing those itineraries in a guest room. So when they arrived, things were really easy for them. Um, we also had so many partners that we connected with and came on board um, the Oval, the Olympic Park, just really um, working during those beginning stages when the vision that Tom and Dave had brought together and, you know, all the people that worked for that bid that didn't actually get to see the games to the finish line while actually being in the organizing committee, everybody just did what they had to do to make it happen. So. Um, we had, I, I was reminiscing and watching through some old videos, um, the video that we used in Budapest to show the IOC before the games were awarded. There was a SLOC 2002 underneath racers that ran past. So that was the Salt Lake City Marathon. And we had to get crazy permissions to put that up and have video and then quickly take it down. So you never quite knew what the day was going to bring other than me. I got to, you know, open the door at 8 a.m. And um, we had an answering machine with tape, right? Like tape. So <laughs> I got to check messages there and um, we didn't have voicemail and there were paper messages passed to people and things like that. But it was, um, it was really amazing to see how people can come together when they're, led by someone who was as passionate as Tom was about the games. He could truly talk a drowning man into a glass of water. He was so passionate about the Olympics and everything they stood for and how great they would be for our community and for the youth of the world to come and experience this incredible place and for visitors to come and experience this incredible place. He really was, you know, an awesome advocate. And I, I appreciate so much, um, when Colin uh, mentioned on his uh, his podcast that the bid committee really planned and put together as part of that plan a legacy, so that the venues didn't sit empty and made sure that they paid back the money that was um, supported from the state through the bond, and they paid it back extra. And now we have these incredible facilities and and the youth and all the work that Bob Bills did with getting youth inspired in sport. Um, it just can continue and continue. And that legacy, I think, is really 
it was part of those beginning discussions. And I came in, you know, right at the end of the bid committee, but it was still central. And I remember one of the USOC, USOC then USOPC now, one of the officials saying just after we won the games that he was, you know, so excited that the game focus would be back on the athletes and their incredible stories and that you know, the bid committee had done such a great job of telling that story. I think that that's really, um, you know, an incredible thing that those people who started this all really left us um, in a great position to be successful moving forward. Where were you when the announcement was made? Were you back in Budapest? Were you here in Salt Lake? And what was your reaction when Samaranj says the city of Salt Lake City? So I was in Salt Lake. There were, I think, three or four of us that were here and the rest of the eight or so staff and so many volunteers were in Budapest. I was at the city and county building with thousands of other Utahns watching that big jumbotron, listening to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir on the Coca-Cola stage, which everyone thought was very, very funny at the time, right? I remember two or two weeks before um, the announcement, I started realizing, okay, you know, we've been working hard at this. I've been here a year and a half. If we don't get the games, if he doesn't say Salt Lake City, I don't have a job tomorrow. I mean, we'll wrap things up or whatever, or we may move to another bid, who knows, but it wasn't anything we'd really talked about because the focus had been so much on, you know, these are our games and this is what we can do. There was the thought that, you know, Atlanta was awarded the games for 96 and this is only six years later to try and be in the United States again. So, you know, we knew we were working against that also. So I was standing in the city and county building, I was with some of those colleagues from Slock, standing under a tree, I think. And um, Big Juan, sorry, President Samaranch comes on the screen and um, says, the International Olympic Committee has decided to award the organization of the 19th Olympic Winter Games in 2002 to the city of, and my heart stopped. Because who in their right mind would say the city of Salt Lake City? And I thought, we have not, we, we, we have been unsuccessful again. And when he said the city of Salt Lake City, I screamed and I was overjoyed. And then I just became a puddle. I was crying and there were so many different emotions there. It was, they have some footage of that announcement in Budapest and you see Tom and Dave and Mr. Jocklet sitting very quietly at a table as this announcement is made. And you can see in the gallery behind them, their wives and their family and different people. And when he says the city of Salt Lake City and they pan to the bid committee, just the pure excitement and relief and so many emotions flood over their faces. I watch it every so often and I... I cry every time because in the beginning, in that, in, at that time, it, it was Tom and Steph and Rod and Dave and Craig and Alan and Bob and Mary 
and Tad and Jason and me. And it just brings back so many great memories of these incredible people and the sacrifices they made. There was, I mean, there were times when we didn't have enough funds for payroll and members on that bid committee funded staff payroll. They just gave everything they had and to see them be rewarded and the just just the looks on their faces and hugging their wives and Kim Johnson jumping over the banister and just hugging Dave. And that, that to me is what the bid committee was. Like it was just this big group of people who worked so hard and loved so hard and were so excited about bringing the games to Utah and to the United States and to Salt Lake City and showing the world what an incredible place this is. And really putting on and having venues and environments that everyone could enjoy. And I don't know, it was a really magical time. That's one of my most favorite moments when I think back about the games is that actual like one sentence, really short moment, looking at this big, huge jumbotron and hearing President Samarant say the city of Salt Lake City and just my heart kind of bursting with so many emotions that it's hard to even describe what it felt like, but it was truly magical. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. It was magical. Even for us who were watching it remotely, I wasn't able to go down to the city and county building, but we watched it on a television in the break room in our office. And uh, we all just jumped up and down screaming when the announcement was made. So Salt Lake's awarded the games. Mm-hmm. What do, what's next for you? I think one of the funniest things that happened after um, we were awarded the games, we got a flood of applications and, and letters and resumes. And everyone said, you know, we want to be a part of the games. We want to help. We want to help. We want to help. So they went into this big, huge file. And I had someone who we had, we had hired someone to do the front desk. So I was doing different administrative work and different just keep up kind of work for a lot of different people. We hired Mike Korologos, who did communication for us, and um, Craig Peterson, who had, was on loan to us from Salt Lake Convention and Visitors Bureau, I believe. He took this big, huge stack of resumes and he handed it to me and he said, I need you to, have to reply to all these people and tell them, thank you, but we'll get a process in place and there'll be official announcements and and job postings and things like that. But right now we can't accept all of these offers, right? I mean, we had a woman who said, you know, I'm 77 years old and I can sing and I can't, I think I should be Lady Liberty in opening ceremony and I can't really hold my arm up, but I have these four beautiful daughters so they could help me. If you dress me up as Lady Liberty and um, I can sing something at opening ceremony and they can help hold my arm when, when I get tired, like just incredible offers like that, that were wild. But my resume had gotten in that stack from two years before. And so I got a letter saying, we're not hiring right now. <laughs> Thank you for your offer. We're not hiring right now. We'll let you, you know, we'll watch for real postings. Because um, we had an, an intern or someone who'd been hired that was processing all those letters that I'd passed that stack off to. So yeah, I actually got a letter the first few months after the game saying, or after the award saying, you know, we really, we appreciate your interest, but we can't hire you right now. <laughs> So that was one of the 
first fun things. I worked in a bunch of different areas. I worked um, because, again, we were just so small and we hadn't moved to um, the office that was once dubbed the Taj Mahal of offices, the 257 building with the wood furniture and the rings colored carpet and um, the FBI in the same building. <laughs> we hadn't moved there yet. We were still in the bid committee and we were still you know, trying to function. So I worked closely with Tom. Um, we brought on a real finance person in Gordon Crabtree. He was our CFO for a while. I worked closely with Gordon. So I was lucky to work in a few different areas. Um, I worked with Frank Jocklick um, when he came on as um, president. I worked with the board of trustees for a while. And when Shelly Thomas was hired as the senior vice president of communications, um, I got to work for and with her and as the only woman in um, senior leadership. It was really awesome to get to know her and to see her navigate interesting times, <laughs> to say the least, and um, really incredible obstacles and opportunities. There was so much all meshed into that short time after we were awarded the games that it was really, you know, I feel really lucky that I got to experience it from that perspective of being in the communication office with Shelly and with Frank and Kirsten and Caroline. So is that where you ended up settling in, so to speak, <laughs> within the communications area? Yes, for a while, that is where I was. Um, lucky for me, uh, the Olympic torch relay fell under communication, and Shelly was the managing supervisor of that for quite some time. So I built a really great relationship with um, Alem International and Steve McCarthy and Gillian Hamburger, who facilitated, they were the contractors for our torch relay. So when Shelly decided that um, she was going to pursue some other opportunities. I talked with the torch relay folks and said, Hey, you know, what do you think? Well, this feels like a really good fit. I'll stay a Slack employee, but you know, let's work together. Can I work with you? And so my final pre games and leading up to games assignment was um, the Olympic torch relay. That's so funny. You mentioned the torch. Simon Wadley from Alem wrote me a note the other day saying, I'm really enjoying these podcasts. <laughs> and I hadn't seen Simon since I think the Rio 2007 Pan American Games. He did the torch relay down there. And um, that's fun for you to give a little shout out to them. I really appreciate that. Tell us a little bit about the torch relay, uh, your role specifically within the torch relay and some fun or interesting stories as they relate to the torch. Oh, my goodness. Um, leading up to the actual relay, I love because it's just typical of how a call center works and how a games works and what happens when there's a whole process for nominating someone. Right. So um, Coca-Cola and Chevrolet were the presenting sponsors for the relay. And we have this nomination process for torchbearers. And they didn't call the Slock call center. They called I want to say it was Coca-Cola. I can't be sure. They called one of our partners. Let's just say that. And um, hi, I'm from New Mexico. I want to nominate this person. Can you tell me whatever? No, you're going to have to, you know, this is, this is open for U.S. citizens only. You're going to have to call your country of origin. You're going to have to call Mexico and have them figure out if there's a way for them to sponsor you as an applicant. 
no, I'm in New Mexico. <laughs> I'm one of the states. No, 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 no. You need to call Mexico and, and have them help facilitate whatever it is you need. No, no, no. I'm in the state of New Mexico. I live in the United States. We're sorry. I, this is, I don't know why this is so hard for you to understand. <laughs> right. But that's how, that's how it goes in call centers and with big events. You get that one person who doesn't quite have a good grasp on the United States. <laughs> and then their story is the one that gets repeated and repeated and repeated across the, the news. So that was a pretty, um, fun beginning to our torchbearer process. You know, the torch relay is an experience all by itself, right? Slack was such an incredible family environment, especially in the very beginning when there were, you know, 10, 50, 100, 200 people. And the torch relay was very similar. We were self-contained. We had security. We had someone who would who had established the the route and set everything in place and the torchbearers were selected and everybody had their piece to play and we all you know we all worked so hard together for those 65 days to transport the flame from Atlanta Georgia to Salt Lake City through the most circuitous route possible i was lucky enough to be the vip manager so i was given the keys to a chevy impala in atlanta and i drove that vehicle so the route was, I think, 15,000 miles. Uh, my car ended up with just a little under 25,000 miles. I don't think that is indicative of my poor driving skills and navigation. <laughs> but, you know, I put 25,000 miles on a car in a 65-day period. And um, every two or three days, I would transition out a guest who would travel with me. So I had about... 40 to 45 different people who either joined us at the hotel or who I picked up at the airport, who I had to acclimate to what it was like to be part of the caravan and um, explain the rules and what happens when someone says, we need to leave, we need to leave because this vehicle that I'm driving is part of that caravan that travels with the flame at times. And at other times I have to leave and navigate myself to the celebration sites a lot of people who came out on the relay were not ready for the hours. We were usually in the cars by 6 or 6.30. We were lucky if we made it back to the hotel for dinner by 10. And you were driving that entire time. When you stopped at a celebration site, one of the breaks or one of the lunches, you know, your focus was on... Do they have something to drink? Where are the restrooms? And we were all focused on that. So it's hard to bring on a guest who's a board member or a prominent person in Salt Lake City or one of our Olympic ambassadors or staff member even from the organizing committee and say, okay, I need you to be downstairs at the hotel at six o'clock. You need to have had breakfast and have all your things together because we're not coming back to this hotel. You'll put your things in my car. We'll drive to the launch site. We'll travel. I don't know how many miles each day. We'll stop for a break. If you get a chance to pee, do, because there aren't opportunities. I can't just pull over. If you've had six cups of coffee, I can't pull over and find you a restroom. So this is what life is like. And then get back in the car and do it all again the next day. A lot of my visitors would sleep in the car 
which is fantastic. But um, we were instructed because we wore radios and we had to keep in radio communication that we couldn't listen to the radio. So when someone is in your car sleeping and you are so exhausted because you've been doing six in the morning till 10 or midnight and they're sleeping and you're thinking, oh man, that would be so nice. I could just take a quick little nap. I had to devise different ways to keep myself awake while this person sitting, laying down in the seat next to me is sleeping, which is absolutely what you want to do. Cause right. You don't have a day off. You don't have a second off. You don't really have any time off from the time that we left home on the day after Thanksgiving until Christmas Eve. That was our first break. So to stay awake, I started putting rubber bands or elastics on my wrist and I flipped them. And eventually after you flip an elastic on your wrist long enough, it doesn't really do the same thing. So you have to move it up your arm a little bit. So it still keeps you awake. And then when that didn't work, I roll down the window and stick my arm out. And that was a signal to the guys who are on motorcycles to check in with me. I didn't realize it. I was just trying to like get the cold air and keep myself awake, but they would come and check in at me, in with me at the next break and say, okay, so how are things going? <laughs> are you doing all right? Are you awake? Are you, are, what, can, is there anything I can do to help you? Like, like I said, I didn't realize that was their signal to know that I was struggling, but they were so thoughtful to, you know, make sure we were all doing all right. So after the cold didn't work, if you pinch yourself really hard on the back of your arm, that wakes you right up. But when you go into warm weather climates where you're wearing short sleeve shirts, then you have bruised arms <laughs> down the back. So, you know, all of my tactics to kind of stay awake and to keep focused and to, you know, be present, they worked for a while and then you just have to change them. So it was, that was one of the things that was hardest for me was just getting up and going every day and there wasn't a break. And if the person that was in my car was sleeping, I had no one to talk to. So it wasn't staying awake and cell phones were still not definitely not at the stage that they are now. Relays are much different now, but um, it was definitely challenging to have people come to the car, to the relay every couple of days and then just want to sleep because <laughs> they were so tired. I have to say, if that was me, I would have weighed 600 pounds by the time it was over because my strategy for staying awake in a car is to eat things. So I would have had a can of Pringles or a bag of Fritos or some Ritz crackers yeah. and uh, 500 Coca-Colas <laughs> to try to keep me to try to keep me from falling asleep while driving. Oh, most definitely. Well, and I didn't drink coffee and I had just gone off Diet Coke. So like I only drank juice and water like no sodas, no anything. There was nothing that was keeping me awake. And you really only had the opportunity to get food at those breaks or at the hotel before you left in the morning. Otherwise, I too would weigh 750 pounds. <laughs> uh, but because I definitely like to eat my feelings sometimes, lots of times, but it would like, I didn't have that opportunity to eat and drink. So that was the the other method to cope with those millions and millions and millions. It felt like miles of driving and, and asphalt. Well, I have to ask about the torch relay. How was the route selected and how did the, how did they decide what cities would be visited by the torch? So they wanted to hit every state 
and knowing when we were traveling, they tried to optimize weather in different areas. And unfortunately, we weren't able with the funds we had and the time we had to get to all 50 states. We didn't make it to Hawaii. We didn't make it to um, Minnesota. Ooh, now, look at that. I can't even remember. We didn't make it, to, we'll just say we didn't make it to four states and they were not very happy with us that we didn't make it. Um, but really, like I said, optimizing travel conditions and building in, a, we built in one contingency day and we actually didn't end up having to use it for weather. We were really worried about that. But then once it was kind of decided that area and the direction of what made the most sense to try and hit at least one city in some of the states, like we barely went into Maine. I think we went to Kittery, Maine, which is right on the border. But there was concern that trying to get all the way up to either the capital city or a more major city, we would run into weather and have to utilize that contingency day. So a lot of thought went into that. And Alem does motor vehicle events all the time and they've done the 96 relay. So they had some really good plans in place for creating that route and making sure that we hit, you know, our partners, major cities and, and those areas that they, they most wanted to um, visit. Detroit was a wild ride just because of the timing and where we were headed and the congestion I mean, one of the best parts about traveling with the relay is you either went so fast or you went so slow. And when you went fast, you were traveling really close to another vehicle. And when you went slow, you were usually traveling really close to another vehicle. So um, you also had your hazard lights on all the time. And when you would first, when that first happened, like it's really obvious in your head that you have these hazard lights and you can hear them all the time. So much so that when you leave the caravan and you're driving on your own, as I did to like a cel- an evening celebration site, and you turn off your hazard lights, you feel physically like there's something missing. <laughs> you don't know what it is and you can't quite figure out what it is that's not sounding right or feeling right. But that noise of the hazards just becomes kind of the background white noise of the relay for you. But working with our partners and with Slack, they had some ideas about places that we wanted to go. We were able to establish that route and hit as many states as possible. Um, Jesse Ventura was the governor at the time and we weren't going to a state and he was very vocal about it. And you know, we had some great friends and communicators <laughs> on the Olympic Committee who you know, tried to smooth things as much as possible and, and help everyone understand that we were doing the best that we could with the time allotted. Like I mentioned, I left home on a plane the day after Thanksgiving and I slept in my own bed the night of opening ceremony. So we were all on the road for that entire time. Wow. Well, I want to come back to that exhaustion you must have felt when you (laughs) arrived back home. But before I do, you mentioned you worked with these VIPs Mm -hmm. and aside from sleeping a lot, (laughs) Did you have any really interesting experiences with any of the VIPs? The story that I really like to tell, and I have talked, I had talked with her about it many times after it actually happened and before she passed. I got the pleasure of having the Lieutenant Governor, Aline Walker, who later became the governor, travel with me. She traveled with a security detail and they drove in a Mercedes, which caused all sorts of consternation for 
a branded vehicle caravan that Chevrolet had paid good money <laughs> for that sponsorship. So trying to figure out how to have that security person, that security vehicle travel with us, but not be part of the relay was exciting. But in Richfield, we stopped and we had lunch. And part of the um, part of the conversation that I had with guests that would come on board was when I say that we need to get in the car, we need to get in the car because this car travels with the caravan, right? So I know when things are moving and I'll give you some general timelines, but if I say we need to go now, we need to go now, or you will be left behind. So in Richfield, Oline Walker was working the crowd and greeting kids and talking to everyone. And I said to her, you know, it's time to go. We have to get in the car. I am leaving. And she said, just a minute, just a minute. And I said, you know, Lieutenant Governor, we need to get you in the car. And I turned to her security and I said, she needs to be in the car now. And this great gentleman said, but she's working, you know, she's working the crowd. This is what she does. And I said, I appreciate that. You're going to have to find a way to catch me. And I got in the car and the caravan took off and I left Oline Walker on the side of the road in Richfield. And I started getting calls from her security guy. She's not in the car with you. She's not in the car with you. I said, I know she's not in the car. I told her she had to be in the car. She would be left in Richfield. And you guys are going to have to figure out how to get in front of us so that you can be somewhere that I can get her in the car easily because I can't leave the caravan, especially in Utah. You left the Lieutenant Governor. What are we going to do? She's supposed to be in your car, but she's not. And there's nothing I can do. So Aline and I joked about it afterwards that, you know, she really should just have listened because she was running along the side of the road <laughs> trying to get to the car. And there was nothing I could do to stop and let her in because there was a car in front of me and a car behind me. And we were you know, escorted by police and we were moving. So that's one of the stories that I really enjoy is that I left the Lieutenant Governor on the side of the road. So how did she get back to Salt Lake? She just hitched a ride. Did she just thumb it on, <laughs> on I-15 back to, back to the Capitol? Well, her security gentleman had a car and so they traveled along behind the caravan, but they, the police officers who brought up the rear of the caravan wouldn't let her get close so she just kind of had to trail behind us and she wasn't in that prominent position at the head of the relay. And she was not part of that caravan of, of vehicles that traveled. So we finally connected a few cities later after many terse conversations with people who wanted her in my car. And I wanted her in my car, but I couldn't do anything to change the dynamic of what was going on. So eventually we caught up and she got in the car and she said, okay, Jill, I promise if we stop, I am just going to stay with you because you will know when I need to be where I need to be. And I'll listen to you. That's an awesome story. All right. The torch relay ends. The hockey team lights the cauldron. Oh my goodness, that you was get amazing. To sleep in your own bed. <laughs> so tell us about the return back to Salt Lake, the opening ceremony, and then you being able to finally crash. The torch relay folks had um the leadership of the relay, Gillian and Steven, had worked with SLOC to secure us um, positions as medalist hosts during the games. So one of my favorite memories is all tied back to um, sport. Bob Bills had started wannabe camps and 
for certain dollars, you could go to either, you know, the oval or ski jump or curling or hockey and learn the Olympic sport a little bit. And I tried skeleton and it was the most amazing thing. I did not break 60, which just killed me, but I had had that experience of being on the ice and knowing how hard it is and just getting smashed around, even with the shoulder pads and the helmet that they put on you. Like you just come away, at least I did, you come away bruised. So I got to be a medalist host for the women's skeleton. So when Tristan Gale won the gold medal in Olympic skeleton, I got to travel with her from the venue to Medals Plaza and hang out with her there a little bit before she received her medal. And that was so exciting. It was um, a whole different experience to be just on my own. We had a driver, so there were just two of us. I didn't have to drive, which was really nice. But instead of being with that huge torch relay family who were all dressed in the same color, I was with all these people that weren't, they were a bigger family, but they weren't as tight-knit as that family that I traveled with for 65 days. So um, it was an amazing experience to get to do that after the relay, but truly like your body just gets conditioned. Okay. So we're awake at six and then where are we going? So when you're awake at six and you're not going anywhere until 10 or 12 or even later on in the afternoon, it's a really strange experience to try to unacclimate from what you've learned and done. It was nice to wear any clothes I wanted instead of our uniform. Though I have to say when traveling on a relay, it is such a gift to just say, I'm picking out black pants for the bottom and a mountain shadow shirt for the top. And I don't have to choose because you couldn't think about laundry or really what you were wearing. At least I couldn't because sleep is so precious to me. So when (laughs) we were not getting much, I would just sometimes skip dinner, go to bed as soon as you could, wake up, shower, get in the car and go. So it was nice to have that uniform and the uniform of the games helped kind of continue that a little bit. So it was a little easier transition of some of just those processes that you, that would we'd put in place over the time of the relay. But I think it was you that mentioned after the games, you kind of went through like a morning period, like this big piece and these big people who had been in my life for eight plus years, I don't see them every day anymore. And it's just over. And for a while, I couldn't even think about after the games ended and the Paralympic games ended, I couldn't even think about the Olympics without crying. I was so, I mean, my twenties, I spent my twenties in the games in Salt Lake city. And so it was really harder than I expected. I always knew there was an end a hard end date for the games, but having it actually end was much harder than I expected. I, I missed that family. I missed seeing those people and having that daily interaction. It's kind of what, so I say the games really helped me for COVID, but like being in the office with people at SLOC and then not being in the office with people at SLOC or even the relay office, it was, there was really like, a depression and I had to go through a whole process of okay, this piece of my life that's been day and night and weekends and so much for so long just wrapped up. And that was hard. It was so hard. It was so hard. But the games were incredible. 
I had such a great experience at Metals Plaza with friends and seeing my family go to events and just hearing about it and experiencing the different venues. I mean, there was such a moment of pride and something else I can't quite explain, but just like I was so happy and content that things went so well. And I knew so how so many people had had such an impact on so many pieces. And hearing this podcast, everyone's intricate small piece and perspective, maybe even on the same events, right? It's their story and it's how they experienced it. So it's been so validating, I think, of what I felt and still feel about the games and how it's this really personal thing for me, but it's also this really big world event. So how that all balances together. It was a, it was a wild, wild ride, (laughs) but it was absolutely incredible too. I think it was every, everyone who's been on this podcast so far has said that it's, you know, the best time is it's an, it taught me how to be part of an office and an organizing committee or just a bigger group or team of people working for a bigger good and taught me so much just about life and people and what you can and can't do. It's something I'm so appreciative of, but at the same time, when I think about all that we did, how we did it, right? But you just did. That was kind of what you did. People, a lot of times when I was working in the Slack office before I moved to the torch relay, they'd say, you know, well, what's your job? And I would say, well, I'm just Jill, right? Like the girls at the front desk, I had told them, especially during the scandal, you know, if you're having a hard time or if someone comes in that makes you uncomfortable, I've been in this position and I'm happy to talk to whomever. So if you're feeling uncomfortable, let me know. And there was one day when we had a very vocal anti-Olympics gentleman. He had been part of my conversations and he had not wanted the games to come to Utah. So we, I knew him from the bid and he came in and he brought this beautiful sheet cake and he'd stuck a file in it. And the girls at the front desk didn't know what to do. And they were so upset. So they called me, they're like, Jill, can you please help? So I went to the front desk and um, I took the cake and I thanked the gentleman so much for you know, vocalizing his opinions. And I really appreciated it. And then I looked at him and I said, look, you and I have known each other for a long time. Why would you go and ruin a cake like this? I have to throw this away now. And I would love to eat this cake because I love cake. And um, just kind of changed that conversation with him a little bit. But I mean, stuff like that happened all the time. And so you just kind of rolled with it, right? So while you have this title of VIP manager or, you know, executive assistant or coordinator. Like I was just Jill. That was just my job. I wasn't a Jack of all trades. I was a Jill of all trades and everybody, I mean, I'm sure you were a Christian of all trades and, you know, every mitt was a mitt of all trades. You just kind of went with it to get done what you need to do and make it happen. And that was the beauty of the games, right? And that's something that I've continued to keep with me in all the other places that I've worked is you just kind of do what you need to do to make it happen. All right, Jill of all trades. Yeah. <laughs> this has been a fascinating conversation. Before we get to our final segment, though, I do have to ask a question. How did you do laundry on the torch relay? 
So you weren't wearing the same uniform <laughs> five days in a row. So we had like four pairs of pants and four shirts and long sleeve and short sleeve. Maybe there were five. I don't remember exactly. And socks and underwear. You had a bag that you would put your dirty clothes in. And um, when it was full, you would leave it at the front desk uh, or our checkout. Because we had a separate checkout and check-in area. Um, we had a fantastic Remain Overnight team called the the Ron team. And they would check us all in at a hotel and they would get everything set up. They had food squared away and they had worked with different hotels in the different places to utilize their laundry facilities. So every piece of clothing I had had my number 135 written on it. And um, you would leave that bag in one city in the morning. And when you checked in at the hotel in a different state, sometimes that bag would be waiting for you with your number. Um, Sometimes long underwear or um, unmentionables would disappear from your bag. (laughs) There wasn't really a lot you could do about it, but for the most part, um, everything that you put in the bag showed up clean and folded in the evening. So it's a remarkable thing that the, the the whole group that travels with the relay actually is able to facilitate. Yeah, most people don't think about those kind of things when they think about Olympic Games, right? You talk about the athletes and their performances, and that's what most of the focus is on, and rightly so. But nobody thinks, oh, well, we have to worry about the laundry for people that are on the torch relay, you know, all mm-hmm. those little details. So thank you for yep. bringing those to the fore. I really appreciate it. Now, we'll get to our final assignments. Is there a particular song or a group? that you listened to back in the day that reminds you of your time at Salt Lake? Yes, there's so many. And a lot of people have mentioned some of the great musical triggers and songs that take you right back to the games. So I have one for the bid, one for the games, and one for the relay. <laughs> so I have three songs, I'm sorry. Um, so the first one is totally cheesy and I'm not a huge Celine Dion fan, but there were times when we were bidding when the people in charge were headed to meetings in Lausanne or wherever, and there was no way for them to contact us when they were on a plane. So on those rare, rare moments when we could take a minute, we would um, go to the movies at lunch <laughs> and we would have popcorn or whatever. That was our lunch. And then we would watch the hour and a half, two hour movie, knowing that we would be there until the night or whatever, but just take a minute to get away. So I went to see up close and personal in 1996 with my dear friend, Stephanie and Celine Dion's because you loved me. is kind of the theme song of it. It's love story, whatever. But whenever I hear that song, I am taken back to the bid and everyone in that office and just that camaraderie. So that's my first song. The second one is, um, train drops of Jupiter. And I know that Anne-Marie, I think it was Anne-Marie mentioned that song, Um, but I got to enjoy the Metals Plaza with train and a dear friend from the relay and her father and her father passed away not long after that. So being in that space with them and and hearing that song is a great one. And then um, one of the women that I worked with on the relay put together um, a CD of songs kind of the background songs of the relay and John Mellencamp's little pink houses um, was on that disc. And whenever I hear that, I just think of driving through America and all of the different places that I got to see and all the incredible faces of those little people who were just lighting up to see the flame and to think about the Olympics. And it was such a hard time in our country. And 
there was so much going on, but there were always fire trucks and American flags and and people just excited to see us drive through their town and to be a part of it. And so Little Pink Houses is definitely, definitely a tender spot for me. Well, that's a beautiful mismatch of <laughs> styles and genres and yeah. talents, but wonderful, all of those songs in their own right. So very yeah. happily, I will put those on the Spotify <laughs> playlist. Thank My you. wife is a big Celine fan, so she'll be happy oh, to see Celine on there. Excellent. Okay. Someone else can enjoy Celine. That's yes. great. <laughs> okay. Now let's go to our restaurant question. So um, during the bid, we because we were small, we would often have um, celebrations, birthday celebrations, staff meetings, things like that at um, the Rio Grande Cafe. And um, I know that building was damaged during the earthquake, so I'm hoping that they will open back up again. We went there um, as a family a few months ago, and um, some of the staff is still there from when the games were we were planning the game. So it was it's a great Mexican place, and so that's one that I always think of. When we were first awarded the games and we were still small, there was a place called Rancho Bowling Lanes on North Temple and about 650 West. It's now a housing complex, but you could fax in your order of a hamburger or a hot dog or a cheese sandwich, cheese, a grilled cheese sandwich. And for like seven bucks, you got two lanes of bowling and your lunch and your shoe rental. So as a group, we would go to Rancho Lanes <laughs> and have, um, kind of a escape from the office decompression bowl off. Um, So I always think of that, even though it did, it closed well before the games ever opened. And then, you know, the gastronomy restaurants, Tom Sieg and Tom Guinea and John Williams were really integral to the bid. Um, They would fly crews of people to different places um, and provide meals for our IOC guests. And they were really amazing. And their restaurants Cafe Pierpont and Bocce and the New Yorker and Market Street and the Oyster Bar. They were incredible. And getting a chance to eat at them was always really fun. I know most of them have also closed, <laughs> but the other one specific to the relay, um, since we were in the 275 building, that's where we planned the relay from and launched from. It was close to Gourmandies and Crown Burger, but right up the street was a, a wing place. It was called Wings and Things. And we, as a, as a relay team, loved to go there and have wings or chicken or whatever. And it also has since closed. So all the places that I love are no longer there, but there are so many other places that have been mentioned by everyone that are good. And like I said, I love to eat. So I'm going to have to take in some new suggestions. And th- there are a lot of great places to eat close by. Well, Gourmandise is still around and Market mm-hmm. Street is still around. Yeah. And it's so funny that you mentioned Bocce and Cafe Pierpont because the guest that I'm actually airing an episode today mentioned Bocce and Cafe Pierpont as their favorite place to go or their favorite place. They were right next door to each other. Yep. I think I've mentioned on a previous podcast, I'm a huge fan of the blue corn chicken, the sour cream chicken enchiladas at yes. Rio Grande Cafe. They're uh, some of my all time favorites. And the bowling thing I think is hilarious. Facts in your order. Facts. Facts. Yes. Facts in your order. I mean, come on. We're talking about answering machines with tape. 
faxing in your order. Yeah. I'm surprised we didn't like send it by telegram, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> Western Union delivering the note to the restaurant saying, this is my order for lunch today. Well, this has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed it. We've got one last question for you and then we'll let you enjoy the rest of your day with, with the little guy. Um, <laughs> here's the question. As you survey almost a decade of involvement with the games from the bid all the way through to the culmination of the games, do you have a favorite moment, a goosebump moment? There are two. There are three, but I've talked about being at that announcement celebration and hearing him say the city and then just like the world stopping until he said Salt Lake City. The second one that I um, I think about often, and it's still takes my breath away. And as I mentioned for the relay, we didn't work on December 24th or on Christmas on December 25th. And a good friend of mine that I traveled the relay with Jessica Matsumori, um, she and I took a subway in New York city the morning of um, December 25th. And we went to visit ground zero and it was so quiet and there weren't many people. Work was still happening, and the church was still helping and aiding volunteers, and there were just walls of pictures and flowers and memorabilia of people who had been lost on 9-11. And being there on that morning when it was so quiet, and being there with Jessica, who had been through all of the relay craziness and a lot of the game's craziness, you know, it was just really powerful and reminded me how small I am in the scheme of things and how big I am, big I am at the same time. So my little contribution to what's happening in my corner of the world, it has a ripple, just like those events had a ripple. And like our games had a ripple. And that moment of peace and reflection on that devastation and how hard things had been. I mean, it was a little tricky and a little uncertain to get on a plane in November and think that we were traveling. And, you know, what does this mean? Are people going to come out and see the flame or... Do we need to heighten security? Like there were a lot of things that changed in September for everyone, but there was always that thought of, okay, but this is bigger than that one moment in time. And maybe this can help heal a little bit. So actually going to the side of the world trade centers and, you know, being able to just take a minute and honor all that was lost there and the sacrifices that people were making to respectfully retrieve those who had perished. It was just, it was a moment that I, it's hard to put into words, but it was really, really powerful, really powerful. And then the last moment that I have, um, I was lucky enough to carry the Olympic flame in Salt Lake City on State Street, right by the Ritz bowling alley. Um, so my family could see um, and I carried the flame on opening the day of opening ceremony. So on February 8th, I got to carry the flame. And it was a similar rush 
of emotions, happiness and sadness, so much culminating in just holding that flame and thinking where everything started and, you know, walking down the hallway of the bid committee and thinking of Tom and Steph and Rod and Dave and Craig and Alan, Bob and Mary, Tad and Jason, like all those people. And I was carrying them with me as I was the one person holding the flame. And I was so grateful and I was so proud. I was so honored to be in that position. And later that night to sit in opening ceremony and I'm a crier, as you can kind of tell, um, but just crying at the beauty and our accomplishment. I mean, we brought the games to Utah and I say collectively because there were so many people who did their little part, their big part. I mean, I couldn't have done it by myself. No one could have done it by themselves. We definitely needed Tom as that visionary leader. We needed Mr. Jocklick as, you know, the guy who kind of writes the ship and keeps everything moving forward. And then we needed Mitt to carry us through the end of the games. I mean, there was a, there was a time for each person and I was so grateful. I got to know them all and I can appreciate what they brought and what they did. So it was just this huge wave of emotion sitting in opening ceremony and watching that flame come in and be lit and watching the flag come in from ground zero and just all the different parts of that ceremony and the music and being in the crowd with people that I'd worked with for maybe not eight years, but close. I mean, it was just an overwhelming, overwhelming feeling of accomplishment and pride and respect for all the people who had worked so hard to bring everything together. So, you know, I, I really appreciate that I was lucky enough to carry the flame and to be able to do that so that my family could see it was a really special moment for me. Well, you shared an hour of really incredible memories <laughs> with us of beautiful stories. And I'm really happy that you were able to wrap up your uh, torch relay the final day as the VIP. You were your own Aww. VIP for that day. And, Aww, uh, so and your, uh, your family got to share that. So that's beautiful. All right. Well, Jill of all trades, this has been a fascinating <laughs> hour. Thank you so much for sharing all of these amazing stories. If people want to get in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing these days or continue to reminisce about the games here in Salt Lake, what's the best way for them to do so? Oh, I would love to continue reminiscing. There's so much that doesn't fit into an hour uh, or two or three or four or even days. Um, I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, my maiden name was Beckstead, which is still very strange to say. So I was Jill Beckstead during the games and you can find me at J Jill Lamping on Facebook. That's who I am. J underscore Beckstead at yahoo.com is the email I established during the game. So the one that still connects to me. So that's probably the best way to do it. Fantastic. This, uh, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time. Listeners, please like, and subscribe to our podcast and we'll join you again next week. Jill, again, thank you. Thank you so much, Christian. And hi everyone. <laughs>